right now and engage in what we're calling a hot topic. And, um, and it's those issues that seem to be very current that we're dealing with, um, you know, not just young people, but in general. Recognizing this, uh, that the Christian faith, among other things, is a life and worldview. I mean, it's the way we look at this world. It's not just a single category in my life. You know, I, I have, you know, I have my, my health club, I have my grocery store, and I have my, my religion, you know, as if it, it's, it, it is something that should prevail. And so what we'll find is, because of that, that no matter what the topic is, it works itself into the tapestry of God's overall topic, which is his revelation of himself to us and his call in our lives. And this morning we're looking at the very, very thorny topic of the death penalty and what does the Bible say about it. And I've picked just a few. I mean, there's a lot of passages in the Bible that engage this issue. I just picked a couple to get us rolling. And um, they are from the Ten Commandments, Exodus from Genesis 9, 6, which is the first time we see this idea of how the human race should respond to, to murder. Then we jump way ahead to the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, and then even further to the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 and 13 in terms of the role of the civil magistrate in this world. So I'm going to go ahead and start us with those passages. Here now the word of God. Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Genesis 9, 6, whosoever sheddeth man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Now Matthew 5, 38 and 39, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And finally, Romans 12, 19 through 21. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you heap coals of fire on his head. Do not, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray this morning as we engage in this very intense topic of what your word says about the death penalty. We pray that you would give us wisdom. Help us to think your thoughts after you. Help us to be a people who are wise, understanding uh, the God of heaven and earth. So help us, Father, to understand that and, and act upon the things. But Father, in a deeper sense, I do pray that you would help us understand how all of this affects our view of the cross itself. That, we know, that this is not just a, a sermon on you know, social pragmatism, but like so many things, it tells us about what Jesus did when he went to the cross to die for our sins. So, so open our hearts to these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a week ago Tuesday, a, uh, a sentence was announced against a woman Bryn Spetcher, who, who fatally stabbed her boyfriend 108 times, Chad Amelia. 
she received, the sentence was 100 hours of community service and two years of probation with no prison time. Now, about 150 years ago, the great theologian Charles Hodge wrote this. Experience teaches that where human life is undervalued, it is insecure. That where the murderer escapes with impunity or is inadequately punished, homicides are fearfully multiplied. The practical question, therefore, is who is to die, the innocent man or the murderer? So this morning, we attack the issue of the death penalty. Is it biblical to put people to death? Is it biblical to execute people for certain crimes? That's what we're asking. Remember many years ago at the National Youth Workers Convention, when I was a youth pastor, I got into an informal debate with a guy named Tony Campolo. Maybe some of you recognize that name, a little Italian guy. And he put his finger, a little guy put his finger right in my chest. And he said, you know what, the problem with people like you, just kind of an Italian thing to do. I'm cool with it. <laughs> the problem with people like you is you think abortion is wrong, but ca- capital punishment is allowable. I, I was, I remember at the time, I was paralyzed by the comparison. I, I felt that what I was about to say to him was so blindingly obvious that I recall going, I need to be careful with my tone here. Am I, am I misunderstanding what he just said? Yes, I said. I think convicted murderers should be put to death and innocent babies should be protected. I recently saw a poster in one of my, my neighbor's yards, and it had the same sentiment as Campolo. It read something like this. How can you be for the death penalty and still call yourself pro-life? All of this to say that that logic, it's still in the atmosphere. It's not one of those things that, you, that was accidentally said, and then you're like, yeah, we shouldn't really say that. That doesn't make a lot of sense. No, it's still part of the discussion. I remember the wife of a pastor friend of mine who came to realize that I, was, I believed in capital punishment. I don't really talk about capital punishment all that much. I don't know why it always comes up in discussions. But I remember she was kind of confused as to why I thought that capital punishment was, was appropriate. She thought that penalty was purely an Old Testament, Old Covenant action that the grace of the New Covenant abrogated or repealed. This barbaric act of putting people to death, now that we are in the New Covenant, is no longer in effect because we're now in an age of grace. Well, leaving for now, I think, a misunderstanding of the grace in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I recall being confused myself when she said that. I go, well, so why, what should we do? If we're in an age of grace and somebody commits murder, how should we respond? And she said, life in prison. To which I said, how is that gracious? You can't. You can't go, well, 
grace, but just so much grace. Because I don't think going to prison for life is an act of grace. It's, it's some form of justice. Well, yet one more poster. And I thought this poster that I saw was very helpful in terms of me understanding what's going on in terms of the thinking of the culture in which I live. And it read, it read this. Why do we kill people who kill people to show that killing people is wrong? You get that. Why do we kill people who kill people to show that killing people is wrong? So in that poster, they're kind of going, see, you're, 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 you're a hypocrite. You're doing the very thing you think is wrong. And when I saw that, I realized what we have here is a categorical fallacy. As if killing is just killing without any qualification whatsoever. Any killing, according to this logic, is murder. Well, if we approach the matter that way, there can be no response to crime at all. If all killing is murder, it logically follows that prison is kidnapping. It logically follows that a fine is theft. If you're not going to qualify the thing, you're kind of going, look at that is that. Killing is murder. Well, okay, so put them in jail. Well, I, you know, I can't grab any one of you and lock you up in my basement. Right? That would, I would go to jail for that. We shouldn't kidnap people who kidnap to show that kidnapping is wrong. Of course, if that's the way we approach it, then we just have street law, right? It's the law of the jungle. It's just like the strong survive. It is difficult to find a topic, I mean, there are others, where the futility of the unregenerate mind becomes more darkened in their understanding than this. Because Otherwise, intelligent people seem to very often build their anti-death penalty arguments on the logic of a two-legged stool. I mean, they're, they're, these are smart people, but they're making foolish arguments. But in order to be fair, not all arguments are foolish. Not all arguments are ill-conceived, like the ones I just mentioned. What I'd like to do this morning is provide, in an effort to be fair, because I really don't like straw man. I don't like it when somebody misrepresents me. And so I don't want to misrepresent people with whom I disagree. What I want us to do is walk away this morning with an understanding of the best arguments in terms of this death penalty issue which are the utilitarian argument, the retribution argument, and then what I'm going to argue for is the, what I think the Christian or biblical argument. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kind of give you, so you'll walk away going, okay, what are the arguments here? So you'll kind of have a, at least a running start at this. But more important than that, 
I want to finish the sermon. We're going to ask, I, I will also try to answer some questions in advance today during Q&A. We're not going to be doing the Westminster Confession because I really want to open this for a discussion. I really want to hear your questions. And so I'll, I'll try to address some questions in advance. But above and beyond all of that, because this is a sermon, and I don't want it to be reduced to some type of social political lecture, what I really want to do is convey how important this is in terms of our understanding of the cross. But before I do that, let me, let me address something else. Because as I was doing my, you know, my spade work for this message, it really severely dawned on me that, you know, I don't want you to walk out and somebody go, hey, what they talk about in church today? And, the and you're going to go, well, the pastor said we just start killing people. <laughs> Wait, they're, they're really into killing people there. I mean, I want us to understand the profound nature of what we're doing here, what we're talking about, because we are talking about taking someone's life. A murder, we're not talking about the other capital crimes in the Bible. I'm really talking this morning mainly about murder. And, and I, I don't think we should enter into that lightly. We should recognize that there's something very deep about that. But as, as Hodge pointed out, and I want us to understand that people are going to die. So it's not as if we're kind of going, let's just kill a certain group of people. Other people's lives are at stake, as we're going to see in just, in just a second. But it should be heartbreaking. Right? We should, we, this shouldn't just be kind of like a, a topic. It should be a heartbreaking topic. You know, there's places in the Bible where the Apostle Paul says to imitate him. He goes, as far as I imitate Christ, imitate me. There are other places in the Bible, Ephesians 5.1, where we're called to imitate God. And I think this would be a good example for us in terms of our imitation of God. Because what we read in Ezekiel 33.11, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? The point here is, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so even though it's necessary, it shouldn't be something that we revel in. It should be something that breaks our heart. There's two records of Jesus crying in the Bible. One was obviously at the tomb of Lazarus. The other was when he came upon Jerusalem. Jerusalem who stoned the prophets. Jerusalem that was going to be destroyed. Jerusalem that was worthy of the destruction that was going to come upon it. Right? They were a guilty people. But when Jesus came upon Jerusalem, he wept. Right? And I think that we need to keep that in our disposition. That it should break our hearts that this should take place. The most popular view that you'll hear if you engage in this discussion is called the utilitarian approach. It is the most, by far the most dominant approach in our current culture, not historically, but in the current culture in which we live. What this means is that we approach the topic in such a way as 
it having the most utility to us. And what that means is that we approach this issue looking for the good consequences of the way we approach capital criminals. On the surface, this looks like the best approach. Most of us, if we didn't think much about it, would go, yeah, that's the best approach. Society, according to this approach, is not so much punishing offenders as much as restoring offenders. It does sound better, right? It's not punishment, it's restoration. I think that sounds good. It's not a, it's not a prison. It's not a penal colony. It's a correctional facility. Right? It's a rehabilitation center. Of course, I, we all would like to see murderers restored, turned from their evil ways. That's, God just said that, right? Turn from your evil ways. But here's the question, and this is what is... This is what has kind of crept into the corporate psyche, not only of our country, but of our church as well, and that is this. Is it the job of the state to accomplish this moral and even spiritual redemption of its citizens? Is it their job to do this? You might notice, you know, I'm a fan of movies. When I, you know, my dad was in in SAG, and so... When I was a kid, I watched a lot of black and white movies from the 30s and 40s. And in the old movies, when somebody, you know, needed redemption, when some bad guy was wanted to turn from his evil ways, where did he go? He went to the church, right? He went and saw Bing Crosby. You don't see that anymore. You know where you go now? You go to the prison psychiatrist. You go to the prison psychologist. You go to the state-appointed psychiatrist. As it turns out, the state is inept when it comes to restoring criminals. I mean, it's almost a proverb that when people go to prison, they don't come out better. When they go to prison, they come out worse. And not only is the state inept when it comes to restoring, they're inept to determine whether or not the criminal has been restored. Pedophile and murderer Robert Jackson Thompson was released halfway through his sentence because the prison psychiatrist said he's cured. And he was out just a matter of weeks or months before he found a 12-year-old newspaper boy and molested and killed him. I'm not going down this road right here, but biblically, that psychiatrist, biblically, that psychiatrist would be in a lot of trouble. That, That psychiatrist would take responsibility. You released the bull that gored. You know, you 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 kill the bull, and then the person who owns it's in trouble. I'm not gonna go down that right now. My point here is. They're just not, the state is just not good at either restoring people or determining when they are actually restored. The advocates of this very popular utilitarian approach are quick to point out that the death penalty, you've probably heard this, I've heard it when I was in college, they're still saying it, that the death penalty is ineffective when it comes to deterring 
others from committing capital crimes. You've heard that? I mean, it's a very popular song that is sung. The death penalty is ineffective. Now, let me just tell you, what they do here is they appeal to very dubious sociological studies as if they're hard facts. You recognize certain sciences are objective and some are very subjective. And sociology is a very subjective science. It's very difficult to prove whether or not something is actually a deterrent or not. But they say it as if it is an established fact. Well, let me just say this. There may be people who are so deranged that the prospect of being put to death doesn't affect them at all. There are people who are suicidal sociopaths and psychopaths who want to die, right? Suicide by cop. You've heard of this, right? They, they, they want to die, and they want a policeman to shoot them. So you've got those types of people, and let me tell you something about those types of people. There is no system of law that's going to help those kind of people. You can have the best system of law imaginable, but if you have people who don't care if they could die or not, then, then this isn't going, we're not, you and I aren't going to sit down and figure out a way to deal with that. That person needs a restored soul. But let me ask you this. I'm assuming most of the people in the room here are sane. Just examine yourselves just for a second. Because you know what? Laws are like locks. They keep honest people honest. Right? So examine yourself. If you found out, say a policeman, a group of policemen came in here today and said, by the way, we have a new law in the books. If you break the speed limit, death penalty. I'm not advocating for that. I don't think it's a good idea. I saw that Star Trek episode. It didn't really work out well. I guarantee you, most of you would go below the speed limit because most of you don't want to be put to death. The idea that it's not a deterrent, I think, wars against our own understanding of reason and logic. But here's my point. That's not the point of the law. It may be true that a certain society is replete with these types of people. But the bigger problem to this utilitarian approach, which may not be immediately obvious, is how it opens the door or becomes, if you will, one of the many doors of government-imposed social hygiene. I mean, have you ever noticed, by the way, that when you read your Bibles, you don't see a lot of prisons? Like, you're, what, what did they, were there no criminals? When, when, we, when we as a people relegate this type of social engineering to the government, when you go, we're going to trust the government with the social character of our society, it can justify unbelievable evils in a culture. If you're going, it's up to the government to determine what is good and right and true. It's up to the government to make sure that we stay in step. It's up to the government to make sure that households aren't too big. Right? It's up to the government to make sure that if you have more than one child, the second one has to be aborted. Could that ever possibly happen? It has happened. It's up to the government to decide what you're going to teach your children. 
It's going to be up to the government to decide not only where they go to school, but what the curriculum is going to be. Could that possibly happen? You see, these things creep in. They sneak in on us. And that's happened in, our, in the penology of our criminal justice system. We view them as the ones who are going to heal us. And you know what? It's just not their job. Dr. Bonson points out the opening of the door of this utilitarian approach can possibly, possibly justify the punishing of the, of the innocent. This is something which happened on a massive scale in the 20th century through godless, socialistic, and communistic dictatorships. And you know what? I mean, in our culture, it's getting legs. It's getting legs. One need merely listen to the bone-chilling interview with Lawrence Krauss and Noam Chomsky. You know, these are two intellectuals. I think, uh, you know, intellectuals. I always, I've always been curious about that term, you know, because there's a definition of what an intellectual is. And by the way, it's not a great heart surgeon or brain surgeon. It's not, you know, Bonhoeffer. I mean, or not Bonhoeffer. Who's the guy who did the... Uh, Oppenheimer, it's not Oppenheimer. An intellectual is somebody who's got a big academic platform but has no consequences for anything they say. They just say stuff. Lawrence Krauss, Noam Chomsky. They just say stuff. They're good in this, like Chomsky is a, was a great linguist, and therefore he thinks he's good in everything. And everybody thinks he's good in everything because he speaks like a linguist. He's impressive. But they're having this interview exposing the lies of religion. And the entire audience breaks into applause. Because in their worldview, the scientists and the philosophers should control what you and I do think and believe. All to say that a biblical penology, and by penology I'm talking about that which the punishment, a biblical penology, it may have a restorative or deterring effect upon crime, but those types of things would be a collateral benefit of something much deeper that we're going to see in just a second. So that's the utilitarian approach. The utilitarian approach is we got to look what's good for society and then we're going to make it happen. Then you have the, the retributive approach, retribution. Simply, this much simpler approach. You've done, you've done the crime, now you must do the time. And, and this is actually much closer to the Christian approach, but it's not the Christian approach. Now, there, let me just tell you the criticisms of this retribution approach briefly. Number one, it doesn't address the root causes of crime. It can be overly harsh. It can lead to a cycle of violence. It can be discriminatory. And it does not prioritize rehabilitation. So retribution, it is closer to the Christian approach in that it lays the stress on the guilt and the deserts that come when a person performs a crime. So it seems to make sense. And have you, as maybe you noticed when I gave the criticisms, 
we're going to see that some of those criticisms are legitimate, but I will say this when we get to my final point, those criticisms will be addressed if we have a Christian approach to the death penalty. The difficulty with the retributive approach is that it really lacks the ability to be specific. What, what, is, proper, what is proper retribution for, ki for kidnapping, for rape? What, what is the punishment for that? Theft. Right, we might go, well, murder, murder, okay, but even though when they're utilitarian, they don't, they're, they don't think that. Uh, retributivist Robert Blecker, he was a New York law, still a New York law school professor. And I thought, you know, he's like, I'm a, you know, I believe in retribution. And he gave his lecture, and I listened to his lecture, and um, I thought it was really interesting. He goes, I spent thousands. <laughs> and I thought, this, here, it's the glaring weakness. He goes, I spent thousands and thousands of hours interviewing murderers, men on death row. And his conclusion was, some of them just deserve to die. Like, okay, that doesn't seem very scientific to me. Have you guys ever noticed, you know, what a mockery our law, our courtrooms are now? We have shows, right? Judge Judy and all this stuff. And for some reason, this judge pops up on my feed. He's like this nice grandfatherly guy. And somebody's guilty, and he's kind of like treats them like they're his own grandchild. And he's like... You know, don't worry about it, it'll be fine. And you like him, and everybody likes him. And it's like, you know, judges aren't supposed to do that. Judges aren't supposed to, we're not going to get into it this morning. Well, I guess I'm getting into it a little bit. The, the judge is supposed to show no pity. I know that doesn't sound good, but the judge is supposed to go look at, this is the law, this is the punishment. You don't sit there and go, you know what, you have a nice look to you. You know, I'm in a good mood today, so get out of here. Because the moment you do that, what about if you're having a bad day? And the person looks like Harry Dean Stanton, right? He always plays a kind of a bad guy, right? And you're like, oh, yeah, that guy's bad. It can't be that subjective. There's got to be an objectivity to it. And so, Blecker, you can't just interview a bunch of people and go, you know what? Some of these guys just deserve to die. That's not the way this works, and that's a weakness of retribution. It's ambiguous. What, what do you do with certain crimes? Greg Bonson made the statement that the non-Christian retributivist is just a utilitarian in disguise. It's a little closer, but it's no better. Now we finally, the Christian view, at least as I understand it, not just me, I'm not coming up with this on my own. And I say this addresses all types of punishment, but this morning we're just talking about the death penalty for murder. Is dictated by the law of God. It's dictated by the law of God. Now, so you open up your Bible, and you'd be surprised how detailed, especially in the Old Testament, those laws get in terms of you do this, the punishment is that. You do this, the punishment is that. And what we'll see in a second is, and here's what the due process needs to look like in order to get a conviction. It's funny how much it is in the Bible. Now let me just say that, that 
to utilize the law of God may have a reforming effect. It may have a deterring effect. It may have a preventative effect. As a matter of fact, I would argue this, and I'm not a pragmatist, but I would argue this. Because the law of God is just holy and good, I would say that the pragmatic effect of the law of God upon a society will have a much greater effect than any utilitarian can come up with. Definitely. <laughs> Amen. But, but let me just say this. The aim is not secular pragmatic utility. That is not the aim. That is not what we, we, we want the legal system, the prison systems to do. Nor is the aim mere retribution. It's just, no, that guy needs to be punished. Think about this for a second. If you want just retribution, you know what you need to do? You need to identify the offended party. Right? they got to make things right. Have you noticed that in courtrooms, generally what is said is so-and-so versus the state of California? Have you noticed that? California, state of California versus so-and-so. Really? Is the state of California the offended party? You see, hidden in there is the deification of a government, as if the government is the offended party. Well, not to sound overly religious, but you know who the offended party is? We've, I picked Psalm 51 today for that express purpose, right? Because, because David not only committed a sin, he committed a crime, which by the way was worthy of death, and the only reason he didn't get death was because God God was merciful, and God has the prerogative to do that. By the way, there are a lot of people walking around who've committed murder, and God providentially has not had them put to death. It's not because, the, you know, it's not because God has forgotten justice. It's because he's been gracious, not to get into that too far. But when David committed that crime against Bathsheba and Uriah, they were offended parties. But who was the actual offended party? So much so that when he confessed his sin, they were left out of the discussion. You, he says, talking to God, and you alone have I sinned against. So the idea of retribution, just sheer retribution against a state does not work because the state is not the offended party unless we're going to deify the state which sadly a lot of us are comfortable doing these days because they want to feed us and clothe us and give us health care like their mom and dad. Maybe it's devious. Maybe it's calculated. Maybe it's just honest ignorance. When either in dramas or in lectures, and there are many of them against the death penalty that they portray you ever get frustrated when somebody is addressing a position you have and you realize, that's not my position at all? But you're presenting it as if it's my position. And the way this is often presented is that the reason that we should have the death penalty is because the family member of the person who's been put to death will feel so much better if we kill the offender. They need it for that psychological and emotional comfort that they'll get when they see the person put to death. 
And they're like, and then, so once they've established that, now they're kind of going, you know what, though, you need to be, I thought as a Christian you were going to be more forgiving and loving, and you just want somebody put to death. No, that is not the argument. The argument is not, I need the psychological respite of seeing the offender put to death. That is not the argument. As a matter of fact, that would be a utilitarian approach. The utilitarian approach would be, we need to do it because people will feel better. To be sure, retribution is a component of the biblical view, and a criminal should pay for his crime. And unlike the retribution, the Bible spells it out in the lex talionis. You guys ever heard of the lex talionis? It's the law of retaliation. And that is that the punishment should fit the crime. Right? The punishment inflicted should correspond in degree and in kind to whatever the offense was. To put it simply, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Have you ever heard eye for eye, tooth for tooth explained as if it's overly harsh? Oh, you guys believe in eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Harsh. I dare say. Societies where punishment is soft, like the one we live in, don't like eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Societies where punishment is harsh, long for eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Societies where if you steal a loaf of bread, they cut off your hand. Societies where if you speak out of turn, they put you to death. Do those do they exist? Yes, they do exist. They have historically. They do today. And those societies long for eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Because all eye for eye and tooth for tooth means is the punishment should be suitable to the crime. You shouldn't overpunish and you shouldn't underpunish. Now, as you noticed, I quoted Jesus where he seems to repeal eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Right? In the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him to the other also. Now, I did a whole sermon series on Matthew, and we can get, go down that road, but let me tell you something. What Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount there is he's addressing personal, vindictive, retaliatory dispositions. He's kind of addressing the idea that you are going to operate the way the government's supposed to operate, which is without pity and without mercy. But you and I are not supposed to operate that way. We're supposed to operate with mercy and pity and love. We're, we have the option, if somebody offends me, I'm to forgive them. Why? Because I've been forgiven. I'm not a court system. I'm, a, I'm an offending individual as well. So you, this, this is a fundamental misunderstanding of the way people read their Bibles. Think about the logical implications if you're going to read your Bible that way. When Jesus says, if you get slapped, turn the other cheek. Okay, is he, is he advocating assault and battery? Is he saying societies should have no law against assault and battery? People should be able to slap each other. Well, if you go further in it, right, somebody takes your cloak, right? Give them the other one. Somebody makes you go a mile, go an extra mile. So is he saying, look at, in the, in, in the Christian worldview, people should be able to steal. 
And if they steal from you, give them more stuff. And the civil magistrate should do nothing when it comes to stealing. Matter of fact, if they enslave you and make you walk, the civil magistrate, just let them enslave you and make you walk. Matter of fact, walk further. Jesus is not repealing those laws. What he's talking about is a personal vindictive situation where we retaliate as personal individuals, which was kind of dominating the culture in which we live. By the way, when Jesus said that, he wasn't teaching anything new. It was already in the Old Testament, Proverbs 20, 22, do not say, I will recompense evil, wait for the Lord and he will save you. Or Proverbs 24, 29, do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me, I will render the man according to his work. Jesus is just repeating what was already in the scriptures. They were misunderstanding the scriptures. And I dare say we're misunderstanding it as well. You know, we, we, there's a, there's a, there's a, you know, you have to study to show yourself approved, right? It's a, it's work. People just kind of gloss over the Bible and go, I, I think I understand it. It's, I was listening this week to four or five brilliant theologians argue, not argue, but discuss the heresies surrounding the Trinity. And I'll tell you, it was pretty deep stuff. I mean, I'm like, you know, I'm having to stop and look Latin words up and stuff, you know. But, you know, one of the points that they made was, you know, well, how do you, how do you bring this to your congregation? And he goes, one of the guys pointed out, he goes, look, it, we're all looking at the circuits. You know, we're like, they, and they are, they were like brilliant theologians working the circuit board, right? But one of them said, but when I go to my church, I just turn the lights on. And we, but we need that, and I feel like we don't have anybody working the circuits. You guys have heard pop, top, and slop. Have I ever shared that with you? Pop, top, and slop. There you have to, these guys were top. You know, they were, they were good. You know, they've done their homework. And so you want to learn from those guys. And then there are a group of guys underneath them who are pop. And they can be good. Those guys can be good or not good. But if those guys are your only source, then you're going to end up with slop. You know, we, we need to study the people that God has ordained, the teachers that he's raised up, that we might understand these deep things. And that's why we're into problems with the Sermon on the Mount. There is a proper biblical retribution. And this retribution or, as we're going to see, vengeance belongs to God. And God exercises it through human agency. Now, let me just say, you know, this word vengeance, we tend to think of it as something vindictive. You need to think of it properly, like a God avenging or God administering justice, not God kind of being vindictive. I've been dancing a little bit around, well, what is the main purpose of a system of penology in the Bible? What is it? If it's, not, if it's not social amelioration, if it's not making the social society better, what is the main thing? Using the words of Abraham in Genesis 18.25, and I could, have, I could have picked 50 passages just like this. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Also in Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways 
our justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright. Proverbs 21, 2 and 3, every way of a man is right in his own eyes. That's the utilitarian approach. But the Lord weighs the heart to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. You see the recurring word there? Justice, justice, justice. And then Proverbs communicates the horrifying reality in Proverbs 28.5, and we see this so often, evil men do not understand justice. But those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Now, in a moment, we're going to see how critical an understanding of justice is, not only to the welfare of society, but to the welfare of our eternal souls. Let me tell you, if you don't understand justice, you're not going to see your need for the cross at all. But I want to just address a couple of questions before we get to that, before I finish up. One is, does the new covenant oppose the death penalty? Which is kind of the question that my friend's wife thought. It is beyond dispute. dispute. Nobody argues that in the old covenant we see the death penalty countenanced. Why? Because man is made in the image of God, right? That very first, don't lose that, right? You know? You know, if a, if a man kills another man, he's to be put to death because in the image of God, he made man. So when you kill another person, it's an attack against God because you are killing that which is made in the image of God. Maybe you're in your own mind right now, you're kind of doing the math on how a Darwinian understanding of the human being disposes with that because we're not made in the image of God, we're just the highest animal. It was really interesting. Years ago, I was reading a book, the Acton Institute, and one of the rabbis was sharing the fact that when they, when they sacrificed animals, one of the things in the Jewish community that that revealed to them when they killed an animal was, because you're not allowed to kill a person, is that they are different than the, we are different than the animals. You kill a person, it's murder. You kill a cow, it's lunch. We, that distinction needs to be made by man shall his blood be shed. So there in Genesis, we see this clear governmental agency, right? There's got to be human beings need to get together and deal with the murderer. Well, do we see that in the New Covenant as well? We see this, and we read it this morning, Romans 12 going into chapter 13. Here's another very misquoted verse. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And people will quote that as if we, hands off, humans, hands off, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But you know what? You got to keep reading. Because when God begins to explain in chapter 13 the means by which that vindication comes, the means by which that justice comes, we see God raising up civil magistrates, God raising up authority figures. And just so we understand this, a sword was an implement of execution. That's what swords were for. Romans 13, 4, for he is God's minister. Interesting, right? They still call them, right? Prime ministers. 
minister of this, minister of justice, minister of defense. Where do you think that came from? Because really they were serving, they were God's minister. For he, the authority figure, the civil magistrate, is a minister to you for good. For if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not do what? This is the New Testament. He does not bear the sword in vain. They're not using the sword there to knight you. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. All to say, the scriptures are not unclear that the death penalty is appropriate according to the word of God. Now, what about the innocent, though? Perhaps the strongest argument against the death penalty is that we see it misapplied. By the way, not as often as they say, but you do see it misapplied, especially when DNA came up, right? All of a sudden you're like going, wow, there are people who were put to death. Now we found out that they were not guilty. And let me just say this. There is no system, regardless of how perfect we try to be, that can overcome human sin and error. I mean, that's just the world that we live in. And one way or another, we either are going to execute innocent people or we're going to let guilty people go and they're going to kill people. I mean, until we get to heaven, it's going to be a flawed system. But I would say this. The biblical due process, which, by the way, is seldom if ever applied, is the greatest assurance against this misapplication. In the 19th chapter of Deuteronomy, as well as other places, we see a couple of things. One is that you need two eyewitnesses. Two eyewitnesses to whatever the crime is. So, you know, this idea of circumstantial evidence and all that, it's just not enough to secure the death penalty. But if somebody walks into a subway and just kills a bunch of people, or somebody walks into a school and kills a bunch of people and everybody saw it, you got eyewitnesses galore. That person, well, if I could put it the way Dr. Bonson put it, God is saying, I need to talk to that person right in it, right away. That person needs to know they're going to have an audience with me. But here's something you seldom see. Deuteronomy 19, 18, and 19. If the witness is a false witness and is accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. Yeah. Let me tell you something. False accusations are serious according to the Bible. You don't just accuse people. And if, and if you're found to be lying, then whatever you were going to have, hoping would happen to them, is going to happen to you. I, by that alone, I'll tell you this, by that alone, most of the people in America who are on death row wouldn't be on death row. Actually, as much, you know, when you go away and people say, what you talk about? And the pastor said, we should go kill everybody. Now you could kind of go, well, the pastor presented a system of law where we would actually kill less people. We actually are more protecting of the innocent than the current system that we have. Another argument, and I can't get into the details, although there's another typo here that needs to be corrected, and that is discriminatory application. And that is there are certain cultures which find themselves more heavily incarcerated or executed than other 
cultures. We see that, right? The 13% of the society is black, but there are 50% of them are in prison. You know, and so you've got to go, okay, that's got to be, that's got to be dealt with or something wrong there. And this is where the typo is just the opposite of what I meant to say. And that is, we would be, I wrote, we would be unwise to address the nature of that problem. We would be unwise to fail to address the nature of that problem. That problem should be addressed. But, again, the application of the scriptures needs to be applied. And what do we read in the scriptures in Leviticus 24, 21, and 22? Whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for the one from your own country. For I am the Lord. It's a, it's a sin slash crime to discriminate. It's the same law. Suffice it to say for now that this idea of discrimination is wrong, but that doesn't speak to the penalty itself. Let me explain. If, if, if there's a road where the speed limit is 25 miles an hour, and there are a group of people who continually go 80 miles an hour, but the police seem to only be giving tickets to a certain group of people. Okay, you got to figure out why are you only giving tickets to that group of people? Here's what you don't do. You don't change the speed limit and you don't lower the fine. That part of it's fine. There's something else that needs to be addressed. But what they're saying is, no, we got to lower the speed limit and we got to lower the, we got to, you know, lower the speed limit or raise the speed limit and we got to lower the fine. No, that's, that's fine. We got to address what the other problem is. Well, all that, and I'm going to finish up here because this is the longest sermon of the year. And that is, finally, how does this affect the cross? You, you recognize this. Maybe, you know, we wear crosses, right? I got a little cross right here. Um, it, it, we've never really stopped to think about how morbid it is. To wear a cross, right? It's almost gothic-y. I mean, if I had a guillotine, a little gas chamber, a hangman's noose, right? An electric chair. But that's what the cross was. The cross was an implement of capital punishment. We don't think of it that way, but that's what it was. That 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 Jesus didn't die in a fight. He didn't die in a war. He didn't die of a disease. He was executed. And when we have a wrong understanding of the, the proper disposition we should have towards execution, how does that not affect the cross? Because we have to recognize that when Jesus hung on the cross, it was an act of God's divine justice. It was God being able to forgive us and remain just. And if the enemy can do what we read in Proverbs and not have us confused about the idea of what's just, then, then we're not going to see our need for the cross. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you just say you hate your brother, you're worthy of death. If you just lust, you're worthy of death. Most of us are like, no, that's not right. Well, that's what Jesus said. We need to understand what would happen to us if God were merely just. If God were merely just, there'd be nobody in heaven except for the Trinity. Right? But he's also merciful. But the reason he can be just and forgive us is because Jesus went to a cross. 
If we don't understand justice, if we allow this culture to pervert and twist and dement our understanding of justice, we are not going to be hungry for the cross of Christ. Because we don't think we're guilty. We don't think we're deserving of death. And when that charge comes that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 8, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Our answer is going to be nobody. I'm not guilty. Instead of the forceful, powerful, biblical answer, and that is, it is God who justifies. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to understand that just the beauty of the consent of all the parts of your word, that we might, Father, have a consistent Christian biblical worldview. But in all of that, Father, may we recognize that the focus upon this, the, the, the telescope and the microscope needs to go to the cross of Christ. And we do pray this morning as we go to the Lord's table that we become manifestly obvious to all of us that we pray in his name. Amen.